Hello. Welcome to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Join us each week as we hear from God's Word, as we seek to prayerfully proclaim the crucified Christ as Lord of all. One Corinthians chapter one, verse eighteen, all the way to chapter two, verse five. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise, and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those, uh, but to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. And I, when I came to you, brothers, did not come proclaiming to you the testimony of God with lofty speech or wisdom, for I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, And my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and the power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. Good evening. Welcome. It's good to see you. Uh, My name is David Brackenbury, or you may hear me called Brax. Um, I serve as the pastor here at Uni Church. Uh, It is fantastic to be here. Uh, It's always exciting to begin a new academic year on the campus. And with that, the arrival of many new faces, many new people to meet. It's a very exciting time. So welcome, Uh, particularly if it's your first time with us. I hope you have a great night with us tonight. You get to meet some other friendly people at UniChurch. And you might even run into people after you leave here, but there's other people meeting on the campus in different places. So hello to you if you're in Colombo Theatre. Great to run into people as you head home from church and realise that you've all been gathered uh, together around God's Word. Uh, here at Uni Church, uh, and Isaac's uh, sort of already explained this for us, we love our Lord Jesus. Uh, we're confident in the hope that we share in Him. And it's because we love God and that we want to serve Him with our whole lives that we love gathering to hear His Word each week. We love opening up God's Word in the Bible so that we can dig deeper, learning the life-giving truths that God gives us as His Holy Spirit is working among us. So if you're a Christian here tonight, uh, you've just moved into college or you've just moved into the local area, we're so excited that you're here with us and we'd love for you to consider making Uni Church your home while you're studying on the campus. 
Uh, if you're not yet a Christian believer or you have other beliefs and ideas, we also hope that you will feel really welcome here amongst us at Uni Church. Um, we hope that you'll keep joining us to hear more about Jesus from the Bible and that you might want to talk more about where you stand with him. Well, we've heard God's word uh, read for us tonight. Let's pray for his help. Heavenly Father, we give you thanks that you've gathered us here tonight, here in this room, in the overflow room, and in other places where our gathering is being streamed. We give you thanks for raising Jesus Christ from the dead as Lord over all, and for the gift of your precious Holy Spirit, who prepares us for the day of his return. Help us to listen to your word carefully tonight and to obey your voice. We ask to the glory of your holy name, through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Well, divisive issues. Uh, that's the heading for tonight's talk from 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. And uh, if you'd like to take notes, if that's something that's going to help, uh, help you to focus and to pay attention, then I encourage you to do that. Um, I think in future weeks we'll try and make sure that's uh, up online as well so people have that outline. Um, but for the sake of people who are online, let me just uh, take you through each of the three points. And there's a little bit more space for notes under point number one. Okay, so intro, point number one, the message of the cross. Point number two, the people of the cross. Point number three, the way of the cross. And then some implications at the end uh, to, to bring it together. Well, there are many ways to divide a room full of people. There are many issues that can split us up into opposing factions. Okay, the little game that we played before is just a, you know, a little illustration of that. Um, but there are more important issues than whether you take pineapple on your pizza or not, aren't there? There are bigger things that can divide us. And there are many levels at which a split, when it happens, can occur. It can happen on the international level. In, a, in something like Brexit. But splits can also occur much closer to home, on a personal level, among groups of close friends or even in families. Uh, given the great hurt and difficulty that is often involved in people dividing and separating from one another, isn't it better not to split? Uh, if disagreements lead on to disputes, and lead on to divisions between people, isn't it better for us to always look past our differences and remain united at all costs? Well, this letter that we're reading, uh, 1 Corinthians, it dates from the first century AD. It's written by a man named the Apostle Paul, who was one of Jesus' personal spokesmen. And it's written to a church, just a gathering of Christians like this one, in a place called Corinth. Paul is appealing to this church that is divided and quarrelling. There are factions among the Corinthians, with each group following their own leader and claiming their own legitimacy. Uh, last week, the first talk in this series, we read Paul's appeal to these Christians at the beginning of the letter in chapter 1, verse 10. And you can look at that in your Bibles or it's coming up on the screen behind me here as well. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that all of you agree and that there be no divisions among you, but that you be united in the same mind and the same judgment. Life in Corinth and life in this church was a bit messy. People were dividing, they were splitting. And life today is messy as well. 
Life in church is often messy. You may have experienced that yourself. Life in a college can be full of mess as well. And maybe especially at a time like O-Week. Paul's appeal to the Corinthians is for an end to all the infighting. For a resolution that's not just superficial or short-lived, but one that leaves them united in mind and judgment. How can that kind of thing be achieved? How can you get to unity like that? And how can it be upheld in the long run? What, in the end, is the antidote and the answer to all of the mess of broken relationships in our world? Mess that we ourselves experience. Well, God's answer through Paul, here in God's Word tonight, it might surprise us. It might catch us off guard. It might offend us. For some of us tonight, as we listen to God's Word, it may even upend our lives and turn them upside down. We might realise that we've been heading in the wrong direction through life and chasing after things that are empty. Because God declares through Paul that he has made a perfect and lasting unity that cannot be broken. But he's created this indestructible unity in a surprising way. He's done it by dividing people. He's done it by dividing all of humanity into two groups. It's in this way, God tells us, that he has cleared a path for his people into eternity through all the mess of this world. But he's done it by turning this world here on its head and giving it a hard shake. If we're willing to listen, God will show us that all of the ways of this world are futile and all of the things that it puts its confidence in are empty and false. Paul says that he's done it by the message of the cross. And you'll see that's the first heading there uh, in your outlines. The message, or the word, of the cross... That's what divides our world into two. So take up your Bibles and read with me from verse 18 here. Or feel free just to listen along as well. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. In this verse, we read about the most fundamental and enduring division that God has made. It is beyond man or woman, It's beyond black or white, colonizer or colonized. It's beyond rich or poor. This is the most basic distinction that God has made. It's the split on the one hand between those who are perishing and on the other, those who are being saved. That's pretty heavy, isn't it? Given the importance of this, the importance of this distinction and the immense gravity of these consequences. On the one hand, being saved for eternal life. On the other hand, perishing, eternal condemnation. It's amazing that you don't hear more about this. I mean, if this is true, this this is the sort of thing that would change your life, right? This is the sort of thing that would change everything for you. So it's amazing that you don't hear more about this There are many very important issues that are worthy of discussion and that get discussed on this campus. The mistreatment and marginalisation of Aboriginal people in Australia. Action on climate change. 
the problem of gambling in our society, the problem of alcohol-fueled violence, and many, many other things. You can find people who are absolutely committed to the cause of advocating for these things, discussing them, and helping to persuade others of their importance right here on this campus. But what you won't find much of is people talking about this word of the cross. And I want to put it to you that that's far more important for your time here on the campus. It's this word of the cross, the message that Paul preaches about Jesus Christ and him crucified, which is the single issue, the single point that divides all people in every place through all of time. It's the wedge that God has chosen to drive into humanity, on the one hand to save some, and on the other to condemn others. Why has God done this? And why has he done it in this way? Well, Paul gives us a compelling answer in the verses that follow, in verses 19 to 22. And it's because of a clash, a clash of two opposing kinds of wisdom, the wisdom of God and the wisdom of the world. A clash, a showdown between these two kinds of wisdom that ended in the death of Jesus Christ on a Roman cross, likely dated to April 3rd, AD 33. This age-old conflict between God and us, which began in the beginning when our first parents rejected God, and continued as they lived out their lives as rebels against him. Wisdom of the world, as Paul talks about it here, means the wisdom of living without God and going your own way. And the Bible also calls this kind of wisdom sin. To our first parents, to every generation since them, and to us today, it seems so wise to pursue the things of this world, the things that we can taste and touch and smell and feel between our toes. But God, in his wisdom, has put an end to all of that. To reveal that everything which seems like wisdom in this world is foolishness. Everything that seems like success is actually failure. All the professional qualifications, the community recognition, the career, the car, the power and the prestige and all of the other things which seem so dependable and solid and meaningful and satisfying on such a deep level, all of these things will ultimately collapse under the weight of those who are leaning on them. God tells us that he is pleased to bring an end to all of this nonsense, this so-called wisdom of the world. But also we see that he is merciful to tell us so that we might escape the ruin. Take up your Bibles again and read with me verses 20 to 21. Chapter 1, verse 20 to 21. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. Unlike the wisdom of the world, which promises security and significance to those who pursue the things of this world, 
God has chosen to extend his salvation and his blessing of eternal life to the people who hear this message that Paul is proclaiming about the cross. Those who hear it and receive it. They trust it, they believe it. They live in light of it. You see, God saves everyone, whether they are male or female, black or white, rich or poor, regardless of any of these human distinctions. Anyone who puts their trust in Jesus and leans on him alone. But we see here, don't we, that this message which saves is also a message that confuses and confounds people in this world. Paul himself calls it the folly of what we preach, to to highlight that point. And then he goes on to explain that it's an equal opportunity kind of folly. Because the word of the cross offends both Jews and Greeks. Jews who are familiar with God's laws and ancient promises that came to them through the the prophets and the Old Testament. And the Greeks, the Gentiles, the non-Jews, with their own gods and practices and, and customs. Uh, Power and wisdom, respectively, are the things they chased. Signs and eloquent arguments. Paul knows that those are the cultural touchstones that that are so important to these groups of people. The things that are acceptable and appealing to them. But instead, Paul says about this message in verse 23, We preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. With those two words, only two words, Christ crucified, Paul can summarise his entire message and point us to the offence of it. How is it that these two words, Christ crucified, can be the source of so much drama and so much offence for both Jews and Greeks? How is that possible? Now, one of the things we like to do here at Uni Church is to encourage you to keep your brains in gear as you listen to God's Word and to be able to discuss it together. So we're going to have a go at doing that now. Might be the first time that you've done this in church. That's okay. Uh, Coming up on the screen behind me is a question. Christ crucified. We've sort of looked at that a little bit there in context. How can these two words cause such widespread offence? Okay. The opportunity here is for a couple of minutes with the person next to you, or maybe a couple of people, if you've got really big voices that carry that far, to discuss this question. Okay? Go for it. All right, there's a little bit of a lull there. Well done, that's great. Uh, what I want to show you up here on the screen is a little piece of uh, street graffiti. It's, it's from Rome, it, it dates to about 300 BC, And it contains the first carved depiction or the first pictorial depiction of Christ on the cross. Okay? But, okay, it's a little bit hard to see there. So if you move to the next one. Okay. Now, what do you notice about this depiction of Christ on the cross? Yeah, he has a donkey's head. He's been depicted here with a donkey's head. And and if if you're joining us via the live stream and you're finding it a bit hard to see this, We've got the figure of a man here being crucified on the cross with a donkey's head and you have a man here down in front. Uh, This man's name is Alexamenos. Okay, that's the first word there in Greek. And the uh, the caption here reads, Alexamenos worships his God. 
Alexamenos worships his God, okay? Christ, who they've chosen to depict as a donkey. All right? Uh, we can put that away now. For the Jews, the idea that the Messiah, and it's just the same word as Christ, should face such terrible public shame, the shame of crucifixion, that was an unthinkable thing. For them to think that God's chosen king, who was supposed to be coming to save them from their enemies, would instead be handed over to the Gentiles, like the Romans, and face God's curse of dying in such a terrible way, that was too much for them. That was the offence of the cross for Jewish people. And for the Greeks, for the non-Jews of the world, uh, I guess as evidenced uh, from that graffiti, the idea that a man who was crucified could be worshipped as God, well, that was something absurd and laughable. Uh, for them, their, their gods, their rulers, they expected them to be superhuman and strong, but Jesus, well, he had stumbled up to that cross and he had suffered and died there. How could Alexamenos worship a God like that? Well, what about today? You see, the idea that, that God the Father so loved the world, the people of this world, that he sent his only son to die in the place of his enemies because they need forgiveness... Well, I think that remains, that message remains just as offensive today as it was back then. The word of the cross confronts us with the truth that we've lived as rebels against God and that we're facing his judgment unless we receive the wonderful gift of his mercy, forgiveness and eternal life in his son, Jesus Christ. We're now at the second heading in your outline, the people of the cross. The people of the cross are chosen by God to be saved for eternal life. Let's just pause for a moment and I want you to consider who are the people that you would choose for your team? Who are the people that you would choose for your team? Uh, let's say you're uh, a team leader, an employer, uh, you're a supervisor and you've got vacancies to fill in your department. Or what if you're the captain of the college sporting team? Okay? You've just come in, you're in first year, but your chops on the hockey field are so good, they've made you captain and they've given you responsibility for the whole team. Who are you going to choose? Right? What if, and I think not so many of us are good at hockey, but what if you are given the opportunity to choose the other members for your first group project at uni. Okay? Who are you going to choose for your first group project? I think you're going to choose the people who you think are going to give you the best chance of success in what you're doing, right? So it's going to be the smartest people, or the strongest, the fastest, or even maybe just the funniest people, okay? because they're going to be great to hang out with. Well, by any of those measures, the people who God chooses for salvation and eternal life are not very good candidates. They are not the cream of the crop. They are not the elite and the best. Uh, take up your Bibles again and read with me verse 26 here. Verse 26. 
For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. There are two things here that all of God's people need to understand. The first is that it's God who chooses us, not the other way around. Very easily we think that we are the ones who chose God. No, God is the one who chooses us for salvation. And second, God did not choose us in the way that we would, but in his way. God chooses us, not in our way, but in his way. When we understand both those things, when we can put those two things together in our heads, then we also understand another thing. And that is, human religion is broken. It doesn't work. Any system of trying to get into God's good books based on the things that you think or do or say, that's broken. And useless. It just won't work. Because religion and religious systems, they're all based upon merit, doing the best that we can with what we've got. But Paul says that relationship with God is not based upon what we do, but what he has done, his choice. And he doesn't choose the people who are the best at hockey or at anything. The wise and the powerful, Paul says, there's not many among you Corinthians who are like that, is there? That's not how God is filling his team. Instead, he's choosing the lowly. Among the Corinthians, we see he's going from the bottom of the barrel, not from the top. And why is it that God is doing this? Why is he choosing among the unimpressive of this world? He's doing it to bring an end to human boasting. Read with me from verses 27 to 29. Chapter 1, 27 to 29. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being may boast in the presence of God. There's been a little bit of a funny story in the news this week, Um, and especially, I suppose, if you follow the financial news, which I never do, but I managed to catch this. Uh, It's a little underdog story that's been taking place with some small-time retail investors from an online message board called Reddit. And they've been banding together and intensely buying a particular stock that's being traded on Wall Street. Uh, They've been doing this to try and stick it to the man, okay? The big multi-billion dollar uh, Wall Street hedge funds. Uh, It's a great little underdog story. It's, It's been quite dramatic. It's had a lot of news coverage, especially in the United States. And I'm sure that they'll make it into a film at some point. Okay, so you can look out for it. Um, Now, I can't explain any of the intricacies of it. All the financial stuff is kind of lost to me. But why are they doing this, okay? It was a $70 billion loss to one of these hedge funds. It's incredible stuff. The reason why they did it, yes, it was to make some money, but more significantly, they were banding together because they wanted to highlight the questionable practices 
of these large firms trading on Wall Street. They wanted to bring a day of reckoning against the hedge funds, to turn the market upside down, even for a moment, and to bring an end to the boasting of all the big players, the big market manipulators that are out there. Now, of course, the, the great irony, apart from the fact that I, I think it's ultimately doomed to, to failure, um, is that in trying to silence the boasting of these big hedge funds, they've instead replaced it with the boasting of lots of other people going, hey, the little guy. So there's still lots and lots of human boasting out there. But what we see here is that when God ends all kinds of human boasting at the cross, he replaces it with only one kind of boasting. Because there's only one kind of boasting that makes sense in this world after the cross of Jesus Christ. It's to boast in Jesus, who is not just the crucified one, but the one who God has raised to eternal life to rule over all. That, that's what it means to boast in the Lord. So if we're followers of Jesus, if we, if we call ourselves Christians, then I think we are fools if we trust in our own wisdom or power or noble birth or advantage in this world. We're out of touch with reality if we keep doing all the religious things that we think will get us into God's good books. Even good things like helping other people or, or coming along to church or, or prayer. If we're doing those things to try and earn God's blessing, we'll We've missed it. Instead, if we put our hope in Jesus, if we are united to him, uh, what Paul talks about here, being in Christ, then he is now our wisdom, our righteousness, our sanctification and redemption. Jesus is now our wisdom if we trust in him because through him we are now walking God's way. He's our righteousness or our innocence before God, which means that we now are perfectly acceptable to God, not because of we, what we've done, but because of what he has done. He's also our sanctification or our holiness, which we heard a bit about last week as well, because now we are made useful to God through Jesus Christ. And he is our redemption or our freedom, our source of freedom because we're now free from Satan and sin and death and all the powers and things of this world. So if that's what we have by faith in Jesus, by trusting in Christ, well then what more could we hope for? What more could we need? And so we can say with Paul, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord, the risen Lord Jesus. We're at the final heading in your outline, the way of the cross. And just as the two words, Christ crucified, can summarize the message that Paul is declaring to the Corinthians and to others, well, the phrase boasting in the Lord, which we've heard, is another way of expressing what Paul is doing as he goes about proclaiming that message to the people around him. Now, in this final section of our passage tonight, uh, verses, the first five verses of chapter 2, Paul tells the Corinthians that it's not just his message, but also his methods uh, that are at, at odds with the world. So not just his message, but also his methods. Because the way of the cross, it seems weak and unimpressive, 
but it seems that way for a very good reason. Now, from, from Paul's writing elsewhere, we, we know that at least some of these Corinthians, they're attracted to the eloquence and the, the rhetorical skill, the good arguments which the other messengers and public speakers come with. But they're not very impressed with Paul. In fact, by his own admission in this passage, Paul's presence and his public speaking, his addresses to people, they didn't seem very impressive. In fact, it was the opposite. So have a look at chapter 2, verse 3. Chapter 2, verse 3. And I was with you in weakness and in fear and much trembling, and my speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom. So not very impressive, the appearance and the words that Paul is speaking with. Now, given what Paul says here and the apparent discomfort among the Corinthians that they were being subjected to his teaching in person, perhaps it occurred to some of them that Paul was not the best man for the job. His word was, was too confronting. It was too edgy. It was too rough. And the way he brought it to them, well, it was embarrassing. Surely this messenger would win more converts if he, if he studied the rhetorical arts, the art of persuasion, and if he invested himself in the great skills of public speaking like the other ones. But instead, Paul seems to draw confidence, greater confidence in fact, from his lack of those skills, his lack of competence. Uh, it's a bit like a 17-year-old driving a motor car, right? That gap between confidence and competence. Okay? Why is that? Why is it like this? And, and here's another question, the final question for you to discuss tonight uh, together. Why does Paul draw confidence as God's messenger in spite of his lack of competence? Okay, why confidence with no competence? Go for it. Well, if we have some people who are here uh, who are brave enough to share some of, some of your thoughts with you, it'd be great to hear some. So... Can I just get a show of hands and I'd love to hear from, from some people here as you've had a go at answering this question. Yes, Karina. Thanks, Karina. Yes, another hand up the back. Oh, I, I can't repeat all of uh, what Karina said except to say that it was extremely helpful and <laughs> I'll try and recap it in a moment. Um, but there was another hand there. Yes, wonderful. Okay, confidence in God, not in himself. Um, that's really helpful. Um, thank you. Um, and uh, a couple other hands... I, India, did you want to add anything at that point? I saw your hand. No, it's okay. Yes? Hello. Yes. Yeah, that's right. Paul is leaning on God and God's power. He's, he's depending upon God as he does this task that he, he you know, doesn't, you know, maybe doesn't have all the skills for or, or whatever. But he's trusting God. He's trusting God. Yes. 
Thank you. Very helpful answers. Sounds like it was a really good discussion, and I hope you've been able to catch that if you're on the stream as well. Paul is not drawing confidence from his own abilities as the messenger, but from knowing the power of God to save those who believe the message. Okay, and um, Corinna's pointed us to verse 5, and that's really helpful. And I might even read that again, but from verse 4. So, so please read. And we see the contrast here. My speech and my message were not in plausible words of wisdom, but in demonstration of the Spirit and of power, so that your faith might not rest in the wisdom of men, but in the power of God. It's, it's actually far better that the manner of Paul's speech is, is a bit plain and, and unimpressive. It kind of matches the message that he is proclaiming. And it also means that the Corinthians are going to be a bit less tempted to catch on to him as the messenger and, and focus on his cleverness and his persuasiveness as the messenger instead of the truth, the thing that can really save them. The same thing's true today, isn't it? Uh, just imagine two boxes, okay? Two boxes out here, out the front. The first one is, is beautifully wrapped. It immediately catches the eye, okay? It's shiny, it's got a lovely big bow on it. That's the one you want to open. There it is. The second one is just plain packaging, okay? Wrapped up in brown wax paper. Nothing about that really to draw your interest. Well, the word of the cross today comes wrapped in plain packaging, it can look unimpressive, it can seem out of place. When it's heard, it can cause great offence and it can quickly become unwelcome at the family dinner table. But if someone's willing to listen, if they're willing to open up and to hear and to understand and to trust the message, that's the power of God to save them. Now, just finally, I want to draw out three brief implications uh, this is really me just throwing a few things at you that you can keep pondering and discussing with other people. Uh, I encourage you to do that, maybe at college supper tonight or with other people as you have dinner to discuss some of these things that I'm throwing over to you, okay? Some of these implications from God's Word. Have you embraced the cross, the message of Christ crucified, the hope of forgiveness and eternal life that God is offering to you. If you have, are you willing, are you prepared now to bear the shame of worshipping the crucified king like Alexamenos? What would that look like for you in college as you settle in during O-Week? What might it look like to stick out at times? Maybe not to fit in as perfectly as a big part of you would really like to. Uh, what will that mean in your workplace? Someone asks, what have you been up to? What happened over the weekend? What will it look like when you travel home for family breaks and get those opportunities around the family dinner table to talk about Jesus? Second, some implications for uni. Well, since God has made foolish the wisdom of the world, what are we all doing here at uni? Well, no, there's nothing wrong with studying the created world, this, this wonderful place that God has made and, and all its beautiful and intricacies. There's nothing wrong with that. 
Yes, there is much good and value in, in education, which you know, grants you knowledge and skills to, to be effective in this world in different ways so that you can serve and love other people. But why are you really here at uni? Will the word of the cross convince you that you're not here for a comfy start to a great career or for no strings fun at college? Is it possible that in your time here, what you'll discover is that you are more precious and useful to God than to waste yourself on that kind of thing? Thirdly and finally... Implications for unity, which is, which is where we started. Unity. At the cross, God has split the whole world, all the people of this world, into two camps, two groups. He's done it at the cross. He's done it in Christ. And so for those who trust in Christ, for those whom God has united to his risen king and to one another... Can Christians ever truly be divided? Can Christians ever be divided, truly, deeply? No, only apparently so. If we trust in the word of the cross and the risen king who conquered, then we're united to him. And in Christ, we're united to others who do the same. So how then should we respond as Christians when other people who, who also claim to be Christians like us and who also claim to love God like us and also claim to love unity like us choose to champion that cause by sidelining the offence of the cross and the clear teaching of Christ in the Bible? What does it mean if a church and its members were to be constantly talking online about uh, important issues like climate change and women's rights and, and other things, but never about the forgiveness of sins in Christ? What if there's lots of posts and praise about politicians who are, who are pushing the envelope, but never about the king who died to save his people? Well, because that might be a bit costly, that might be a bit too offensive. What do we hear here in God's word tonight? The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, you love us and you long for us to be united to your son Jesus and in him to one another. Help us to love one another by not being quarrelsome and divisive, but by together recognising that there is one great division that you have made at the cross. Forgive us when we find ourselves tempted by the security and the significance that the world offers in its wisdom. Please keep us in your loving care, trusting in our risen King and boasting in him alone. We ask through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. Thanks for tuning in this week to the Campus Bible Study Podcast. Make sure that you're subscribed on your regular podcasting app. And why don't you check us out at Facebook, YouTube, or visit our website at campusbiblestudy.org. <music>